Two servants kill their employers and go out into the night with their loot. They end up getting caught, but one of them will get a significantly lighter sentence than the other. Once pardoned, she will get a chance at a new life, while she could have been responsible for the deaths of two people and an unborn child. The question that we need to answer today is, was she an instigator or simply an innocent accessory? This is the story of Grace Marks. Serious question. Serious question. Gun to your head. Mm-hmm. Gun to your temple. What is the dumbest question that somebody can ask you? I mean, I'd like to believe that you would lie about this, but what is the dumbest question somebody can ask you about yourself that you wouldn't know how to answer? Again, I would like to suggest that you lie in these kind of situations if you are ever in one. Why would they be? Why would they be in this kind of situation? Maybe they have friends that like to play Russian roulette. You have already lived for 10 lives during this video. So what is the dumbest question that that somebody could ask you, that you would just be like, I can't, I don't know, I need to lie on the spot, and I suffer when I need to lie on the spot, and then what if they know? Imagine how creepy that would be, because my answer would, well, the question that somebody would ask me would be like, when was the last time you wore a bra? And I'd just be there confused, lying. Of course I would lie. And yeah, But then imagine if they know Imagine if they knew the truth. How creepy would that be if somebody was stalking you to that level that they were the one to know when was the last time that you wore your bra? Wow. Um, the definition of overthinking right here. Hi, friends. <laughs> that was something. I wouldn't really call it an intro. I don't clearly have one of those because this is how I start all of these videos. Today we're going to Canada. We're going to like ancient Canada, like 1850s, you know. Because why the fuck not? Because this is one of my favorite books. I wanted to, you know, kind of like bond with people, I guess, by sharing that Elias Grace is one of my favorite books. Everything by Margaret Atwood truly is. And it's a nicely done. Netflix series as well. And we're off to Canada, the land of beaver tails and the nicest people. And again, beaver tails. Have you ever seen beaver tails? And I'm not actually referring to like part of the beaver's body. It is the cutest looking dessert, guys. I'm so in love and every Canadian I've ever spoke of told me that it's nothing special and now I'm heartbroken. So I have lived through all of the emotions when it comes to beaver tails already. So if you are a Canadian watching this, what is the dessert that you're like, mm, no, this is top notch. This is like classic Canadian dessert. You gotta try. Fuck beaver tails. Put beaver tails aside. But it's the cutest name. Whoa, okay, so this is what happens when the caffeine hits. We are not here to talk about Canadian desserts, although feel free to comment on them, yeah, in the comment section. We are here to talk about Grace Marks, to talk about the true story behind that series. So lower your expectations on the part of like me actually remembering every single detail of the book and the series because I did read it a long time ago and also watched the Netflix series a long time ago but what you don't need to lower your expectations on is the real story because this girl found the court documents she found the essentials well I mean everything really that you could find 
considering the story is based in the 1800s. So we're diving into that story because I need people's opinions. Because even if you read the book, even if you watch the Netflix series, you probably have your own opinions. Was she guilty? Was she innocent? Was she an accomplice? Was she a mastermind? Who was she? Why did she do it in the first place? Or did she even do it? And where did her life end? Because in the end, spoiler alert, that is one thing that we don't know. Where did her life end? Yeah, let's not spoil completely the ending because that kind of defies the purpose of us sitting here. And let us just dive straight in. So Maya is the name. Gone Bad is the game. It is this series that I do on this channel, where I sit on my very fat and comfortable ass. Ooh, I suggest you get your ass to the fat level. And I tell you a story about a person that has lived a nice life, kind of boring, if you really think about it. You know, the 9 to 5 grind, and then one day, boom, they switch to crime. And we discuss why. Why? Is any of us going to do the same? Hopefully not, please. So this isn't there for an inspiration, it is there for discussion purposes, so that we can avoid doing the same mistakes and we stay off the criminal pathway for the rest of our lives. I'm going to go off the camera and do a couple of jumping jacks to calm my tits down, because this is insanity. And then I'm coming straight back to tell you the actual story. Okay, let's do jump jacks together. Here, coming. Your tits down. I'm gonna have the breath. So professional. This is so great. I have enjoyed <laughs> this caffeine heat so much. So let us dive in. <laughs> Our story today starts in 1843 in what is now known as the Ontario area, but what back then was known as Upper Canada. And our story starts with the death of two people. Thomas Kinnear and his housekeeper, Nancy Montgomery, were found dead in the home. And upon checking the house, their servants, James McDermott and Grace Marks, weren't there. And this will in turn bring them to the number one spot on the suspect list. It will only be a matter of a couple of days until 20-year-old James McDermott and 16-year-old Grace Marks ended up being arrested. Both of them would face trial, by the end of which one of them will get a death sentence, while the other one would get life behind bars. This is where Elias Grace, the book and the series pick up from. Because we get introduced to a character that is to provide us with an insight into the mind of Grace Marks. Jordan Simon is the psychiatrist that will end up being recruited by a group of people that believe that Grace Marks is innocent. Through the interviews Simon Jordan was to have with Grace, we can only hope to get to the bottom of what actually happened on the day of the murders. But Simon Jordan is a completely fictional character introduced by Margaret Atwood in an attempt for us to get a grasp of why Grace Marks would have done something like this. Why would a maid kill two of her employers, steal from them, and then run off with the guy that simply worked with her? 
that she didn't have any affiliations with. After hearing the true story of Grace Marks, you might agree with me that Simon Jordan and his character development was purely used as a literary device because as viewers, as content consumers, we need to explain the why. Was she manipulated or was she the instigator of the events? In order to get a grasp of that, we have to start from the beginning. Grace Marks was born in Ulster in Ireland. Not much is known of her childhood except that her dad was a stonemason and also an abusive alcoholic. In 1840, when Grace was only 12 years old, her whole family, including her parents and eight siblings, would take a ship in order to emigrate to Canada. And that, on the surface, might sound like a great journey with all of your family across the ocean. Of course, this is 1840. It was anything but. There's a couple of things throughout the history that were going on during this time that are relevant in this story. And you can look this up. There are books, encyclopedias on this online. I'm just going to summarize the relevant points. So, in 1837, there was some turbulence in Canada, between Upper and Lower Canada. There was a rebellion. People were rebelling against the crown, against British colonization, and the political status quo. This insurrection will lead to many deaths, but it will also lead to what was known as Act of Union, meaning that the provinces of Canada, so Upper and Lower Canada, would be merged, and it also resulted in the introduction of the responsible government in order to prevent any future insurrections, any future rebellions. What the establishment of the responsible government meant was that now government reforms would work towards reducing corruption and restricting the power of the ruling parties, meaning the upper classes. So, for Grace in particular, this would mean that potentially servants of anybody of the lower class, including all of the immigrants accumulating in Canada from all different parts of Europe, including Ireland, had the potential to be accepted in the US and to rise above the job positions that were once only available to the immigrants, including the jobs within servitude. This potentially meant that if you were to work hard, to be smart, based on that and based on you coming from a country with the English heritage, the upper classes might feel threatened by you because you might actually be able to eventually rise above them based on the hard work compared to your ancestry or inheritance, which were the only possibilities for you to achieve anything as an immigrant beforehand. Another thing to bear in mind is that most people coming from Ireland, most of the immigrants, would be of Scottish or English descent, and they would mostly be coming from the provinces of Ulster, so where Grace was from. During the next decade, they would be coming out of Ireland for all sorts of different reasons, due to religious conflicts, due to potato famine later on, due to the political autonomy and just economic conditions in the country. And they would come to Canada, some of them to the US, in search of land ownership and with a promise of greater religious freedom and, in turn, better lifestyle. But in order to get there, they would embark on the journeys onto what were 
famously known in the time as coffin ships. So, A, there was no breathable space on these ships. People would be crammed onto these cabins. And Grace's family was already huge. So it was all of her family, plus a ton of other people, just sleeping over each other in this cabin. The motion sickness, they would be traveling for over six weeks. It was actual hell on earth. And if you're thinking, oh, luxurious cruise trip, no. This was a breeding ground for all sorts of diseases, because you are stuck on the sea for six weeks with all of these people on top of you, and you are treated mostly as a cargo, because these ships weren't actually built to transport people, to transport immigrants. They were built to transport logs, wood, different items. So they were never actually intended for any form of comfort. So, it would come as a no surprise, but this was actually really nicely put through in a book, that one of Grace's family members suffered with a disease while on the ship. Her mom actually fell ill. And a week would pass, and the family would realize there is no salvation. She was awake through the night, she was sweating through the night, she started hallucinating, she was speaking with the kids, and the kids and the husband sort of started saying their goodbyes. Because Grace's mom died in the cabin with so many people, and because they were still so far off the shore of Canada, the family had to wrap her into the bed sheets and flip her body over the deck of the ship. And that must have been traumatic. Grace, at this point, was 12 years old, on a ship, just moving countries, the whole instability surrounding that, and on top of that, her mother dies with a disease that there was no solution, no medication for. They don't know who is next. And this is only three years before the crimes that Grace Marks was later said to have committed. Another thing is that due to these diseases that would develop on the ships, even once they would make it to the Quebec port, to any port in Canada, sometimes these ships would be queuing there for weeks. Sort of as a form of quarantine. So, if you survive, hey, you can leave the port and you're welcome to stay in the country. And if you don't, then, well, you're just going to end up being another body that will be flipped over the deck. It was quite grim that whole experience must have traumatized Grace. And then once you are actually released from the ship, well, you don't have any stability, really. You're an immigrant, you are seen as the other, and Grace will always be seen as the other in this story. That will be one prevalent theme of this whole case. And on top of that, any job prospects, any land ownership, just even having a house to live in, nothing is really guaranteed to you on this new turf. Through the historical records, we won't really know the details of the households that Grace worked in before she landed in the Kinnear's house. We just know that she had different domestic jobs, so she worked as a maid in all of these households, and all of them would in turn write up a nice reference for her that landed her the job in the Kinnear household after all. The book would develop on one particular household before the Kinnear one, and that would be Elderman Parkinson household, where Grace found a job and she worked under another live-in servant called Mary Whitney. 
Mary was truly the light in Grace's life. Grace had just moved to the unknown country, she didn't really know what was expected out of her, and she was quite on edge, of course, with the death of her mother happening so recently, with her being so young. And Mary just always had, like, sarcastic remarks about her employers. She would always, like, sort of brighten up her day. She was also quite young herself. But Grace took to her because she was still older than her, experienced in this job, and Grace potentially also saw her as a motherly figure. Mary and Grace would soon become best friends, and Mary always had a positive outlook, believing that through her hard work and perseverance, one day she might not be a servant anymore. One day she might free herself from the servitude and either become the lady of the house herself if she gets to marry somebody who is rich, or actually work her own way up so that she doesn't need to depend on no man. That was until one day Mary suggested to Grace to play this game, to find out the initial of their future husband. The way they're going to do that is each of them has an apple that they have to peel, and you need to ensure that the peel doesn't break, so that the peel comes out all in one. Once it does, you flip it over your shoulder, and whichever letter it lands on, or like the shape of the letter that it lands on, that would be the initial of the first name of your future husband. Grace does it, flips the peel over her shoulder, and it lands on the letter J. But when Mary flips her peel over her shoulder, it doesn't land on any letter, it breaks. And Mary takes this to heart. She takes this as a foreshadow to her whole fate. And that might have been due to the real events that were going on in Mary's life, that Grace was only going to hone in on. The book Elias Grace insinuates that Mary started seeing one of her employer's sons. And after seeing him for some time, she started throwing up, she started having morning sickness. And she realized she was pregnant, and kind of a couple of months along. So she decides one day after this imposing so much stress on her to confront him, to tell him that she is pregnant, to see what he's going to say, whether or not he's going to own up to it, or whether he won't have anything to do with her. And as expected, it was the latter. This son didn't want to acknowledge the pregnancy or take any responsibility for it. So Mary knows if she was to carry this pregnancy to term, at the time, if she was to become a single mother, it would be frowned upon, she will lose her job and her reputation. So she heard about this doctor that was doing abortions at the time. And bear in mind, 1840s, nobody really knew jack shit about how to do abortions properly, what month should be the cutoff point. So Mary would go have this abortion conducted and she would come home supposedly okay, you know, leaving that in the past. But that evening she would sleep in Grace's room and Grace would sleep on the floor just so that she can check up on her and see if she's okay. And during the night she was screaming in pain, she was waking up, she seems to be bleeding. Grace was trying to help her out and, you know, tell her, like, we're gonna call a doctor, but she said, it's too late. And by the morning, Mary Whitney was dead. Just as Mary's body was discovered the next day, the employers, of course, realized that 
where she was bleeding from would indicate that she had gone through an abortion, that she was pregnant, that they don't want this to come out because it will bring a shame to the household. Like, whose child was this? All the speculations that are going to start going on. So they bury Mary and they also suggest for Grace to start looking for a new household. Yet again, so that she doesn't slip up and say anything about Mary Whitney and her circumstances. So they write up nice references and they suggest this Kinnear household. While this is happening and Mary is to be buried, a week before Grace was to start working for Kinnear household, the Kinnears would employ a guy called James McDermott. The household that Grace was about to join was run by Thomas Kinnear. He was an upper-class Scottish-Canadian farmer, and he had this ranch and lived just north of Richmond Hill. He lived alone in this huge house with his housekeeper, whose name was Nancy Montgomery. And all of the accounts on this story say that the relation between the two seems to have been rather less than kin and considerably more than kind implying the two of them were doing it, which is the weirdest way <laughs> that I have ever heard somebody relay that information, but the two of them were having an affair. In June 1843, Nancy, the housekeeper, would hire James McDermott. James was 20 years old. He also moved from Ireland to Canada in 1837. He was Irish Catholic, while Grace was Irish Protestant. And before being hired at the Kinnear household, he served in the 1st Provincial Regiment of the Providence all over Canada, meaning he was in the military. But I couldn't find any historical records whether or not he actually fought during the French and Indian Wars. My personal opinion is that he probably didn't, because had he fought and been successful as a soldier in the wars, well, he probably wouldn't have been working as a servant three years later. So, let's speak a bit about the dynamics in the house, because there were all sorts of different dynamics and different hierarchy. As we established, everybody kind of knew that Nancy and Kinnear were more than just a housekeeper and the house owner, but obviously it was on the hush-hush, it wasn't really public information. But Nancy's mood heavily depended on it. And because Grace was new, she was really young, and also because she was a woman, well, Thomas Kinnear kind of showed affection towards her. Like, if she was to drop something, he would kind of help her out, you know, pick something up for her. There are some moments where she would be coming from the market, like, carrying a heavy basket, and then Thomas Kinnear would offer to carry it with her. And Nancy would encounter some of these instances when Thomas would be helping Grace, and after that, the whole day, she would just be really, really snappy. She would make Grace do all of the chores that she hated, like polishing the floors, doing an extra load of laundry. She would just make her work around the clock, because she would get really pissed, thinking that Thomas might be showing affection towards her. Remember, this was Nancy's territory, all the way up until Grace showed up at that household. It was just Nancy and Thomas. So, she didn't have to really put much effort into it, she didn't have any competition, and she also didn't need to hide it, necessarily, from anybody that was now a living servant 24-7 in the house. 
And another thing that I need you to have in the back of your head is that everything, all of the dynamics I'm speaking about right now, happened within only three weeks. It would only take three weeks between Grace Marks was hired and the crimes that Grace and McDermott have committed. The dynamic between Grace and Nancy heavily depended on Nancy's relationship with Thomas Kinnear, how he would behave in relation to Grace, but more importantly, how nice he was to her, because there is a class difference here that you need to remember. It wouldn't benefit Thomas Kinnear for this affair to be made public whatsoever, so he was keeping this on the hush-hush. So, on the days when he would gift Nancy something, or when he would just be kind, pay more attention to her, ask her to dance for him, drink some wine in the evening when they thought nobody was awake and noticing, well, the next day she would just wake up as a ray of sunshine and she would be really nice and amicable with Grace. And then on the other days, when she was jealous or just didn't get laid the last night, she would just make Grace do all of these chores. But just to further contribute to this newfound instability, where Grace had no confidence, she didn't have Mary Whitney, she lost two important motherly figures in her life, she suddenly started picking up on the same signs that she was picking up from Mary Whitney. Nancy would be waking up late. She would sometimes run to the toilet to throw up. She would be staying in bed complaining about stomach pains. And Grace, now more aware of the pregnancy symptoms, knew that if Nancy was pregnant, if she was to come public, the same thing that happened with Mary Whitney will most probably happen here, because Nancy was still a housekeeper at a higher level of servitude, but still not somebody at the same social class level that Thomas Kinnear would marry and make his wife, which meant that Nancy's days were counted in the house, but it also meant that Grace's might be too. Which meant that she was working under a load of stress, constantly depending on Nancy's moods, and just having to work to please both Nancy and Thomas Kinnear in order for her to get yet another reference, to be moved into another household if this was to happen. Once Nancy either goes public with her pregnancy or conceals it, regardless of what she decides to do. In terms of the dynamic between Nancy and James McDermott, that job contract, if we were to call it so, in the 1800s, was also looking as if it was to end about a month into it. Nancy was publicly outraged and reproaching James McDermott for how he did his job, for how much he slacked. She was just bickering at him all the time. They weren't like the mood swings that she had with Grace. With James McDermott, she just wasn't satisfied. And she was constantly threatening that she is just going to leave him without a job and without a week's pay if he doesn't start not showing up late, if he doesn't stop slacking. This is the point in the story where everything becomes the he said, she said. So Grace would always be saying that the dynamics between Nancy and McDermott 
would be what led him to be the instigator of the plan, to tell her how he actually planned to kill Nancy Montgomery. And in turn, James McDermott would be claiming later that he, in turn, had witnessed Grace and Nancy constantly being at each other's necks, constantly bickering, and that she was the one that came up with a plan. So, what was the plan? Well, Nancy apparently finalized her decision. She actually told James McDermott that he should be looking for a different job, because as soon as his month is up, he's going to be fired. And he's going to be fired once Thomas Kinnear returns from his trip to the US. So, three weeks after Grace Marks was employed, and a month after James McDermott was employed at the Kinnear household, Thomas was supposed to take this one two-day trip, like a weekend trip to the United States. As this was a business trip, McDermott expected Thomas to return to the household with a load of money. So his plan, according to Grace, was to kill Nancy while Thomas Kinnear is away, wait for him, then murder him, take the money, and just disappear. James would, of course, say that this was all Grace's idea, and that she actually instructed him that that evening she will be sleeping in the bed with Nancy, so that he can't do it then, that he needs to wait until the morning in order to avoid accidentally killing her in the same bed in the dark. But then, in the morning, just a couple of hours before Kinnear was to return to his own house, she woke up and just went up to James McDermott, whispering in his ear, aren't you a coward? So she was kind of teasing him at the same time, just building the frustration in him. Because tick-tock, the time is ticking, they expected Mr. Kinnear to return from his work trip around midday. Whichever option you believe, whether Grace Marks was the instigator and this is all her plan leading him to finally snap, or that this was McDermott's plan and that Grace was just going along with it, Grace that day just continued as normal. She woke up and resumed her duties. And as she was going into the shed to milk the cows, James McDermott finally snapped. As Nancy went outside of the house to monitor what was going on in the yard, James McDermott whacked the back of her head with an axe. He then carried the limp body of Nancy's into the cellar and closed the hatch. But Nancy was not dead. She started reaching for the ladder that was in the cellar, and at this point, Grace just ran from this shed. She realized what has happened, and according to her later statements, she would be horrified. She would be petrified. She would think, like, what if he whacks me on the head next? But she was even more horrified to hear the sounds of Nancy down in the cellar, knowing that she is alive, knowing that now they have to finish the job. So McDermott opened up the hatch, went into the basement, and then Grace followed him, and she was the one to jump on Nancy Montgomery and strangle her with a scarf. After she did this, she just left the cellar, leaving James to dismember Nancy's body and hide it under the large tub in that same cellar. Around midday, as they expected, Thomas Kinnear returns to the house, and he is surprised not to see Nancy there, but Grace just invents, like, oh, she has gone to the market, she has gone to the neighboring house. 
So he goes up to rest, and around 7 p.m., James McDermott invites him to just check a broken saddle, because they had, like, loads of animals, including horses, on this farm. And as he draws him into the kitchen to check on this saddle, Grace would later testify that she heard a gunshot inside of the kitchen, and she ran to check up as to what was going on. She would run into the kitchen and would see Mr. Kinnear lying dead on the floor and James McDermott standing above him with the double-barreled gun on the floor. So she decides, in the moment, let me flee. She tries to run out of the house, but James shoots at her. He misses, and this would later be confirmed as the account of events, or would support her account of events, because the police would be able to find a bullet in the door jam of the kitchen. She will admit, after the two of them dropped Mr. Kinnear's body in the basement as well, they would ramage the house looking for all sorts of valuables, and both her and James would run away. I'm unsure exactly when they were caught, but it was maybe a passage of a couple of days. Their plan was to run as far into the U.S. as possible, but they were caught in Lewiston in Maine, and they would be arrested. So let us speak about the trial, because this is where we have the testimonies and more details on what actually took place on the day of. If you recall that history narration from the beginning of this video, you remember that I said that the lower classes might have thought that there was an opportunity for them to rise above, that they might have seen themselves as one day getting out of the servitude, being the employers themselves. Well, in the context of Grace's trial, those words might be echoing differently, because from the get-go, the media sensationalized certain parts of this story, including the appearance of James McDermott and Grace Marks. So, about James, they would say that he was a slim man, middle height, with a sullen appearance, who didn't seem dismayed during the proceedings. When it comes to Grace, she was 16 at the time, and people immediately noticed that she isn't in the clothes that would correspond to her, to her class and to her age, implying that she probably stole some of Nancy's clothes on that day of the murder, and that she is wearing the clothes of the person that she has killed. They said that she was good-looking, but otherwise appears totally uneducated and devoid of expression. I'm not really sure how they determined that she is just dumb. I'm not really sure how they looked at her and she was like, she looks dumb, but they did. Both of them pled not guilty and would have two separate trials. So, let's speak about what happened during each and what they testified to. Let us first focus on Grace Marks and her testimony. Grace's testimony started off by her giving a background, an insight into who she was. She said she was daughter of John Marks, who lived in the township of Toronto, who was a stonemason by trade, and who came with her from Northern Ireland about three years ago. She had four sisters and four brothers. She gave details about the households that she worked at, and she said that she met Nancy Montgomery because she was visiting the previous household where she worked before the Kinnears. After she was hired to work for the Kinnears for $3 a month, $3 in 1840 is worth around $94 in today's money. Everything seemed to be going on as usual for about a fortnight. 
She did notice during those two weeks that Nancy and James McDermott were arguing, but on that fortnight on the dot, Nancy actually gave him a two-week notice. She said if he doesn't start acting up, that she is going to fire him. Grace said that this is when James actually started talking smack about the bosses, about both Nancy and Thomas, and that it was actually James McDermott who told her that Nancy and Thomas had been sleeping together. If she was only to investigate, she would find out that it was true. And now Grace was connecting the dots and she realized that it is indeed the truth because Nancy never actually slept in her own bed unless Thomas Kinnear was out of the house. And during those times, Grace would usually sleep with her in the same bed. About a week after that, James kind of summoned Grace and told her, Grace, can you keep a secret? If you can, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to do to Nancy and Thomas. And she said she will keep a secret, and this is when he threw the plan at her. He's having... the Thomas Kinnear has a plan to have a business trip, and during that night he plans to kill Nancy, and then in the morning, once Kinnear returns, plans to kill him, take all of the money, all of the valuables from the house, and run over to the US. And this plan initially didn't even involve Grace. Kinnear left for the city on Thursday afternoon, the 27th of July, around 3 o'clock. And as soon as he left the house on a horse, James McDermott said it's good job that he's gone, he would like to kill Nancy that night. But this is when Grace herself admits that she actually convinced him not to do it that night. The reasons being purely selfish, because Grace sleeps with Nancy in the bed, as we established when Mr. Kinnear is not in town, so that accidentally he doesn't kill her. So he promised her that, but then he also kind of looked her in on the modus operandi, and how he actually plans to kill both of them. James said that he plans to knock Nancy out, and then hit her with an axe, dismember her body, and then once Kinnear comes back, plans to think of an excuse, and then shoot him with a gun. And he got Grace to promise that she is going to assist him. That evening, Nancy and Grace slept in the same bed, like they always did when Thomas Kinnear was out of the house. And the Friday morning, once they woke up, Nancy told Grace to pass McDermott a message that Saturday will be his last day and that she will be paying him his wages. When Grace passes McDermott a message, he's visibly pissed. He says, damn her, is that what it is? I'm going to kill her before the morning. And he makes Grace promise him yet again that she will help him, as she told him she would. And she says yes. That evening, so the Friday evening, James Walsh appears on the ranch. James kind of pops back in and out of the book. He is the guy that takes care of the horses on the ranch, and his role in the book is to be potential love interest of Grace's. It's always insinuated that he might have a crush on her. But during the historical events for the archives, what I could find, I could only find James Walsh's testimony at Grace's trial. I couldn't find any details about the dynamics and about how he interacted with the household in the real story. So, James Walsh appears with a flute. He would always be playing the flute. He was kind of like another light character 
that was distracting Grace and helping her just deal with her day-to-day -day surroundings. But Nancy invited him, saying that as long as Thomas Kinnear is not in the house, they might as well have some fun. And then she invites James McDermott to dance for them, because he would always brag how he was a great dancer. So he does, but he's in a really PC mood, which there is a reason for it, because it's his penultimate day at the ranch. He knows he's about to be fired. So, of course, he's not really the life of the party. They go back to the bed. Grace goes back to sleep with Nancy. And James, by the end of the night, he's pissed. He's saying, I'm going to finish it off tonight. And this is when Grace begs him not to do it tonight. Because it's dark in the room, he might miss and hurt Grace instead. The next morning, as Grace goes into the kitchen, McDermott asks her, where is Nancy? And she says she's dressing up. He's determined to kill her as soon as she walks down the stairs, but Grace tells her not to do it in order not to make the floor all bloody. So he agrees, and he says he's going to kill her as soon as she reaches the garden. So Grace goes into the garden in her version of events. She goes into the garden to gather some shives. And once she returns, James is cleaning the knives in the kitchen. Nancy comes in, tells Grace to go get the breakfast ready. So Grace does as she's told, and she goes to the water pump in the garden in order to get some water for the house. And once she turns around, she sees McDermott dragging Nancy over the yard, leading from the back kitchen to the front kitchen. She said this happened around 7 o'clock in the morning. He tells her that she promised to help out and that she should follow him towards the cellar where he's just going to drop the body. Once he throws her into the cellar, he realizes that she isn't dead and asks Grace for her handkerchief to finish off the job himself. According to Grace, James told her that she can't go and follow him, but he shut the trapdoor after himself and a few minutes later, he popped back up saying that she is dead. This is when he told her, Grace, I know you'll tell, and if you do, your life is not worth a straw. Again, in Grace's testimony, this is when she says that she told him, I could not help you kill a woman, but as I promised, I will help you kill Kinnear. A couple of things that popped into my head as I was noting this down. First, the self-preservation, the fact that Grace never wanted to be harmed herself whether that meant that she might have gone along with it because she feared for her life, or whether that just meant that she was selfish as hell. Second thing is the fact that this dragged along. Grace could have alerted somebody. She could have alerted Jamie Walsh. She could have alerted Nancy. She could have fled during the night. She had so many other options in order not to go along with this story and not to help him out. But most interestingly to me is the fact that she didn't want to be involved with killing Nancy. And I personally here think that it might have been because of the pregnancy, that she couldn't bear to kill a pregnant woman just because of how much it reminded her of Mary Whitney because she was pregnant, and also probably because she was the only one that knew it. I don't think that Grace shared this with anybody, I don't necessarily think that James had known. Would it have changed his opinion? Probably not, but I definitely think there is something here as to why Grace didn't want to kill Nancy.
After killing Nancy, James McDermott just went along into the kitchen and had some breakfast, and he was asking Grace does she want some, and she says she couldn't stomach anything, she was just so on edge. Because James McDermott wanted to kill Kinnear as soon as he appeared. So between 11 and 12, Kinnear comes home, they help him off the horse, and James McDermott goes to the stables to take care of the horse and the saddle and all of that, and Grace offers Kinnear some lunch. Kinnear would ask about Nancy, and Grace would lie, saying that Nancy went into the city center, passing by, like, the main stage in the center, and Kinnear found that odd, saying that he came that way and hasn't seen Nancy. And also, Kinnear asked, did the butcher come home? So, like, can you prepare some meat for lunch? And Grace said, no, the butcher never actually came today. And Kinnear found both things odd, but he trusted Grace. So, he retrieved, read some books, slept for a few hours, and then at 7 p.m., James McDermott came with the saddle story. But also throughout the day, so between like 11 a.m. and 7 p.m., James McDermott was on the edge. He was saying like, I'm gonna kill him now. I'm gonna do it now. And Grace was saying, I will help you, but you need to calm down. Like now is not the right moment because what if somebody else pops by? This is during the day. What if James Walsh, what if anybody else walks in. They're gonna know we are the culprits. And James was saying to that, well, yeah, that's why I need to do it now, because eventually he's going to start being suspicious about Nancy disappearing. And also, if somebody pops by, they're going to start asking more and more questions. At 7 p.m., McDermott said he's going to lure Kinnear into the kitchen, so Grace said she doesn't want to be there. So she went into the back kitchen to clean some dishes, and as she was doing that, she heard the gunshot. So she ran into the kitchen, saw all of the blood, saw the gun that was used by James, and she was visibly upset, but James told her, you promised you're going to help me out. So in the back of her mind, she knew she had promised, so she opened the back door, and James just pushed Kinnear's body in on top of Nancy, and then shut the trap door, and this is when Grace, again, had the urge to run. So she started running. This is when James McDermott fired a shot at her, but missed, and the bullet was lodged into the door, and after this, Grace just fainted. Once Grace came to her senses, she asked James, why did you do it? Why would you shoot me? And he said he thought the gun was empty. He knew that she won't run. But of course, she's frightened. She's intimidated. So, the two of them start going about their day as usual, but now they know that there is a chance that somebody heard a gunshot. And, of course, here comes James Walsh again. He comes to ask where Nancy is, in order, again, to speak about the horses, to speak about what needs doing. Grace lies, saying that Nancy went to visit somebody on her horse, and James Walsh asks, why did I hear a gunshot? To which James McDermott kind of interrupts the conversation and says that he was just shooting birds. So they manage to hush Jamie Walsh away, and the two of them start packing up. They first went down into the cellar where both of them were lying dead. Grace was holding a candle while James took the keys and some money from Kinnear's pockets. They waited until 11 p.m., 
which is when they put all of the loot onto one of the horses and took off for Toronto. According to Grace's testimony, McDermott said that they are off to the US and that he plans to marry her. Once they arrived to Toronto, they would stay at this hotel and this is where Grace unlocked a box where she packed up some of Nancy's stuff and he put some of her clothes on. They took a boat at 8 that day and arrived at Lewiston around 3 p.m., had dinner, booked two separate rooms, and this is where Grace said that he will not be taking another boat trip, that this is where her journey finishes in Lewiston, and that James McDermott can do whatever he wants. He can continue his trip, but that he tried forcing her and trying to convince her to actually go with him. That night, they go to separate rooms, separate beds, and at 5 in the morning, somebody reported they have seen them, and the bailiff finally arrested them. The next witness that testified during the trial was the guy called James Newton. So, James Newton apparently appeared at the house on Sunday. He was supposed to meet with Kinnear, and he just realized how quiet it was. He walked in and saw the spots of blood. But apparently, he didn't realize where they were leading to, or rather, the trapdoor was under a carpet, whether or not that was a contraption that these two came up with, or this is how it actually looked, I'm not sure. But then he went to investigate around the house. And he realized that Kinnear was there recently, possibly yesterday, but then he disappeared. So, James Newton goes out of the house to look for Jamie Walsh. The two of them meet, and Jamie Walsh tells him about the conversation that he had last night with Grace and James, telling them that Nancy might be at the Wright's family. So, James Newton leaves Jamie Walsh to keep watch to see if anybody appears, while he goes to check whether or not Nancy is there. Once he confirmed that she isn't, he goes to report it to the police and brings this esquire, Mr. Boyd, that will also testify with him to what he presumes is a crime scene at this point. Once back there, they finally open the trapdoor and they discover the bodies. It seemed to them that Kinnear was wearing the same pants that they saw him in yesterday, so... That's how they were determining time of death in 18,000. This is how far behind we are on these servants that are clearly the guilty party because they're nowhere to be found. And as Boyd is examining the bodies, James Newton is looking around the house because he was friend of Thomas's. He's looking at all of the ramaged parts, checking for all of the valuables to see what they would have stolen. He would later, in trial, identify a gold snuff box, a telescope, a pocket compass, tape line, pen knife, two pieces of coin, different articles of clothing, different silver cutlery, and finally Kinnear's crest as the items that Grace and McDermott have stolen. Francis Boyd, the esquire, would testify in court about the state that he found Kinnear's body, and after the examination, it was determined how he was shot. There were no defensive wounds pointing to struggle, which led people to believe that this was kind of a surprise shot, that somebody lured him in, that he was shot in the kitchen, and then dragged by his shoulders and just thrown into the cellar. The next up was the butcher that said that he actually did 
come on that day and that weirdly enough it would usually be Nancy welcoming him, taking the meat, paying for it. But on this occasion Grace kind of hurriedly rushed to the kitchen door and she said the family doesn't need meat today. And he just found that weird because for months before this would be the delivery day for him. And he said Grace was never the one giving orders, so he asked where Nancy was, and again she lied, saying that she is at another person's house, and that he should well, go away because she clearly knows that they don't need any meat. Then there was the testimony by David Bridgeford, who was the coroner who examined the bodies. He determined that Nancy was the one who died first because her body was in that bathtub in the basement in some stages of decomposition, while Thomas Kinnear's body was not yet decomposed. He confirmed the bullet came from one of Thomas Kinnear's guns and found the gun on the scene, justifying that this was the murder weapon. But the most explosive account was once he examined Nancy's body and figured out that she was indeed pregnant. Next, James Walsh took the stand and he testified that he played the flute last night in the household. And then, around half past eight, James McDermott said that he wasn't feeling well. He just seemed like he wasn't in the mood the whole evening. And he left. And James Walsh actually lived in the cottage that was on the farmland. So, when he decided to go home, he kind of heard some rustle from the stables where McDermott was. And this was Saturday night, so technically James McDermott should have left forever. Maybe came to pick up the wages, but, you know, he was to be fired. Mm -hmm. So, J.B. Walsh approaches him and McDermott is holding a gun saying that Nancy was actually the one to give him the gun. But Jamie Walsh found this to be super strange because he recognized that this is Mr. Kinnear's gun and he just didn't think that Nancy would give him one, but he dropped it and he left to go home. He would also testify that the gun that was used as the murder weapon was that same gun that was in James McDermott's possession, and that both McDermott and Grace were in their employer's clothes during the trial. It seems like McDermott is wearing the shoes that he can't possibly afford, and also is wearing Mr. Kinnear's hat, and that Grace is head-to-toe dressed in Nancy's clothes. Then it was McDermott's time to testify. He said he's 20 years and 4 months old and he was born in Ireland. He spent past 6 years in Canada that he enlisted onto the Provincial Regiment in 1840. That while he was there he saved up some money, but then the regiment was disbanded, so he was looking for other employment. He testified that he heard Thomas Kinnear was looking for a servant, so he came to the house where Nancy approved of him, but she had to wait for the approval from Kinnear. He did, and a week later, Grace Marks was employed. In McDermott's account of events, he downplayed a lot his bickering and relationship with Nancy. He said that he did have struggles with her, but he discussed it with Kinnear, and Kinnear told him that she is the mistress of the house, she should be respected. So that he said, you know, after he had that conversation with Kinnear, that he is not going to last here longer than a month, that he plans to leave himself. And he very much overplayed Grace's role. He said that it was Grace's plan to poison them. 
And this is where, in my opinion, it is very much a stereotype that probably his lawyers advised him to play upon, as, like, women wouldn't choose violent options to commit crime, rather they would choose poisoning. He was saying that Grace was mentioning poisoning the porridge every day, especially because, according to James, Nancy said that she will let Grace go as well, and she was pissed, saying this is not how she plans to go. She wants to poison their breakfast, both of them would die, and then they can take all their silver cutlery, everything valuable, and they can just leave. The premise here is that, according to James's testimony, Nancy wouldn't pay Grace, so she was just going to let her go without the pay, so Grace had to ensure to pay herself. When Mr. Kinnear left for the city on Thursday, Grace said now is the time to kill the housekeeper and Mr. Kinnear once he returns home, that she's going to assist him and that James would be a coward if he doesn't do it. He said, I will not say how Mr. Kinnear and Nancy Montgomery were killed, but I should not have done it, if I had not been urged to do so by Grace Marks. Just like Grace in her testimony, James McDermott would say that she was the one to go into the cellar after the deaths to take all of the valuables, even suggesting that she could take Nancy's earrings off her ears, and James advised her not to, that that would be too much and too obvious later, once they get discovered, like, who, what the motivation would be, indicating that they were the culprits. He finished his testimony by saying, Grace Marks is wrong in stating she had no hand in the murder. She was the means from beginning to end. After the whole trial, the jury only took 10 minutes to deliberate before delivering the verdict guilty, both of them, on all counts. However, James McDermott was to be executed by hanging, the very next day, actually, after the verdict was read, but Grace Marks was to serve a life term in prison. On Tuesday, 21st of November, 1843, a huge crowd has gathered in the city of Toronto in order to witness James McDermott's execution. His last words would be that his confession of yesterday was true, and that he wished further to state that when the housekeeper was thrown down the cellar after being knocked down, Grace Marks followed him into the cellar, brought a piece of white cloth with her, and that he held Nancy's hands while she tied a cloth around her neck and strangled her. This is where we go towards sort of the middle of the story with that statement. That will only become public due to James McDermott's execution. We can't, because this is 1840s, we can't actually confirm who exactly killed Nancy. Rather, who finished her off, whether it was Grace or whether it was James McDermott. But the only thing is that... Whoever it was used Grace's handkerchiefs. Maybe he did it to implicate her. Maybe she did it, not thinking about it. After this, he claimed he had nothing more to say. He walked onto the scaffold, and this is when he was hung, after which he was displayed in that position for about an hour, and then his body was taken and later dissected. Now, Grace Marks is still in jail. And after eight and a half years into her sentence, it was said that she started exhibiting signs of insanity. 
Her medical records would later say that she had daily illusions, that she started imagining strange figures that were invading her life, that she was sleeping badly, wandering around the room for most part of the nights, searching for the subjects of these illusions, of these fantasies. Due to this, she would end up being sent to Toronto Lunatic Asylum, and this is where she was treated for about a year and a half. After this, she returned to the Kingston Penitentiary, and here she served 20 more years. And the prison sentence in the 1800s would be spent quite differently to what you would think about prison today. Most of the women would spend their days mending the bedding, sewing, stitching, doing basically all of the handwork being useful to the prison staff. And these particular tasks were what initially allowed Margaret Atwood to bring Simon Jordan as a character, as a form of alienist, which is what the psychiatrists looking into the mental health of the prisoners in Victorian era would be called. Most of the book surrounds either their conversations or the perspective of Grace Marks or the perspective of Dr. Jordan. Now, this is where the character of Mary Whitney is introduced. And through the conversations that she has with this psychiatrist, we are led to believe that Mary Whitney was a real person. All of the details that she describes about the life in that household, the apple over the shoulder, Mary's pregnancy, how much she related to her, how much of a mother figure she was to her. But then, by the end of the book, Grace would undergo hypnosis, and she would realize that there is a second personality within her called Mary, sharing her body. This will lead Dr. Jordan to believe that Grace isn't really possessed by a spirit of dead Mary Whitney, rather that she might have a split personality. But at least for me, where the book leaves off with Dr. Jordan is that throughout it, throughout it all, all the way up until the hypnosis, you kind of are led to believe that he trusts her. He completely believes in her account of events, and it seems like Grace Marks has yet another man wrapped around her finger. And then the hypnosis happens, and it just seems like he suddenly switches, because he realizes that Mary Whitney was never a real person. Did she make her up to serve her own ends? Is it an actual split personality? It's all kind of left up in the air. Now, according to the historical records, everything that I could find, Mary Whitney was never a real person. I couldn't find any details of her ever existing. And that could be because she brought the shame to that household, because she was pregnant by one of her employer's sons, and because they wanted to eliminate her record. We will never truly know, and that is one part why this story is so interesting, because she serves so much to the fictional representation of Grace Marks, and also would serve a lot to understand the real-life Grace Marx's psychology, but we just will never know. Is she the product of Grace's imagination, or was she actually a real person that worked with her? Or did Grace have a split personality? Due to all of the stories that she shares with Dr. Jordan prior to the events, 
the time that she really spends justifying women in the society, how the servants were treated, how both her and James McDermott were treated in that household, all of the immigration struggles, her mother dying, Mary Whitney dying, you are really led to believe, in the fictional work at least, that there is a possibility that she was just an accessory, that she might be innocent. But in real life, there was no Simon Jordan. In real life, there was no Mary Whitney. Nobody really looked into her mental health in this depth. Yeah, she spent some time in the asylum, but most of the time she still spent within prison. So it came as a surprise to many people that after serving around 30 years in prison, she was released. She was 46 years old when she was pardoned, when she moved to New York, and this is where the record of real Grace Marks would disappear. Margaret Atwood would later state that she has seen the questionnaire that Grace completed when she left the Kingston Penitentiary. One of the questions that they asked her was what has been the general cause of your misfortunes and what has been the immediate cause of the crime for which you have been sent to the penitentiary. Her response would read, being employed in the same house as the villain. Now, Elias Grace ends in an interesting way. According to the book, Grace Marks moved to New York, but she moved there to marry Jamie Walsh, the guy that testified against her in the trial. This doesn't support any real-life theory because we have no idea what happened to Grace Marks beyond her leaving the prison. And it seems like Jamie Walsh constantly nags her to retell him the most traumatic events of her life, to retell him her stay in prison. And one of the last scenes from the book is Grace Marks making this kilt that is made out of Mary Whitney's petticoat, her prison night dress, and then the dress that Nancy wore when Grace first came to Kinnear's house, stitching all of their lives together in this way. And you have to wonder, did the book end in that way to suggest that the circle just continues? The circle of traumatization of women through that period of time, the way that even though she has served her sentence, she could never truly escape her life. Possibly that she is being re-victimized all over again by a man who testified against her, or possibly something completely different, and that is that she is still in control, that she was always callous, that she had all of these men wrapped around her finger, that she ran the show, and that she is completely devoid of emotion, because in the end, she had chosen this life for herself. She could have fled the scene of the crime, she didn't have to stick around to commit it, and in the end, upon the release from prison, why would you marry somebody that really testified against you? Unless it benefits you, again, in some way, bringing you to the status that you always desired to acquire. But that is the story of Grace Marks. I don't know if you can tell, but I find this one, like, insanely interesting. And I don't usually find old-timey cases interesting. And that is mostly because of the fictional portrayal of Grace and how it compares to the real-life story. What are your personal thoughts on this one? Was she guilty? Was she not? Was she just an accessory? 
Did she have any hand in any of these murders? And when you question that, then question it in regards to the portrayal of Grace Marks in the book or the series. And question whether you are led to believe that we should be sympathetic towards her. Because she was a woman during this period of time, because of her background, because she was a servant, because this truly might be one of the earliest representation of mental health in jail. Are people actually up to stand trial? Did she have any underlying mental health issues? And like, how does all of that play into your decision? I think based on everything I've read that the truth lies somewhere in between, that both her and James McDermott had a hand in these murders, because there is a lot of things that overlap in terms of where they were, how they did it, the gun that was used, the bullet stuck in the door. There's a lot of truth that came out of there, so I think it lies somewhere in between, and that both of them contributed equally. Which also means that that leads me to believe that even the real-life Grace Marks did influence men, jury, judge, everybody involved, because James McDermott was executed the day after, and she wasn't. She was eventually pardoned. And here, just like in so many cases, I based my decision on what came aftermath the events. Sort of like what I call post-meditation, which is not a word. Proving the actual pre-meditation. I don't think that one of them just started up the conversation one day and was then influencing, influencing, influencing the other. I think it could have been the two of them just doing their jobs, having breakfast, starting up a conversation about their dynamics with Nancy, and that then one of them just started up saying, well, what if we just got rid of them? And the other one got hooked. And it could have very well been Grace Marks. But in terms of the post-meditation, she could have fled on so many occasions. There was a whole weekend there where she could have escaped, flagged it to somebody, convinced McDermott not to do it or that she will report him to the police. But she never did, which leads me to believe that they have planned this. And it just fascinates me that there was only three weeks for all of this to occur. Just within three weeks, Two people that have never met decided to kill their bosses and went ahead with it. So that is the story of the day. Let me know in the comments what you think, what you believe in your heart was the truth. And I shall be seeing you guys soonish. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Get ready for October because Hornswill is back in town, or rather Hornswill. Whichever way you want to twist it around, uh, I thought of calling it Hauntville 5 last year because the premise is, in the month of October, I tell you a story about five cases that belong in the same village, village being my head, that haunt me. There's something so gripping about each and every one of these cases that has me hooked and will have you hooked. You can, obviously, replay all of the five cases from last year and get ready for this year's one. This is gonna be epic! I'm researching, like, day and night, so you better like and subscribe.
Let me just reveal the themes and then you can see if you can guess who I will be talking about in the comments. One of the cases will be a famous case from New Zealand. It happened in New Zealand, but it was a case of somebody who moved there. That's all that you reveal in Maya. Second one would be about a survivor. Another really famous, really jarring and just graphic survivor story, and I'm gonna be reading a book about it. Then there's gonna be a story about a famous Hollywood famous case that is still in the news and still hasn't been closed that I need to switch your opinions on because <laughs> I'm basically making it to switch my friends' opinions on. Then we're gonna be talking about a YouTuber that went too far and not in a murderous way but kind of almost, probably actually even more legally and ethically wrong. And then, for Halloween, we are dressing up and we are going fake crime, fictional, one of the coolest movies that I have seen recently. Yeah, so hopefully you can't figure out what the cases are. Hopefully there's still a surprise for you and hopefully you tune the hell in because October is my month, baby. It's my month. Because it's my birthday month and it's all about the Scorpio lifestyle. <laughs> it's gonna be wild. It's gonna be wild! You know how people believe, like, during new moon they can't sleep at night? Yeah, that is what I feel about October. It's like, I live for that shit. I don't even like the fall, I don't even like the cold, but I like the Scorpio energy in the air! Oh, the sexual vibes! Oh, the criminal vibes! Oh, the manipulators are coming alive! I don't know what I'm leaving you with in an outtake. It's probably something fucking weird. Bye, guys. And I shall be seeing you in October. Five cases. Stick around. Stick the fuck around. Okay. Aggressive as fuck. Just another day in the life of Maya where I started filming for absolutely no reason. Actually, I think it's reason enough for me to start a topic about it because people need to talk about this before we judge each other's and our naked bodies. Okay, so I went to the gym, right? I mean, you can see it underneath my husband's loose clothes clearly that like I commit to, to this lifestyle so seriously. Anyways, that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about public shower areas. Who are you in those circumstances? Are you the person that like puts the towel on and then walks into the shower area and then when you come out you like again with that towel you put your underwear on, you wear underwear in general? I don't think it will come as a surprise to anybody watching this that I don't have issues with nudity and just being nude openly in front of a bunch of people. If the world was full of nudist beaches, truly I'd be in heaven. And most probably openly bisexual, but that is not the topic of the day. So the way I go into the public shower areas, because it is like a shower area, right? So I go in there clothed, I take my clothes off, I go into the fucking shower nude, and I get out and put those clean, clean clothes on, right? So I was doing that today, and then this other bitch that was just to go into the shower was kissing her teeth when I came out of the shower nude, like... <sighs> Woman. It's not the fact that she was judging me. I'm, I don't mind. I mean, you know, maybe my body is not deserving of your praise. Maybe you didn't want to see all of this. 
I don't mind that. But then she proceeded to go inside of the shower fully clothed and then item by item throw her clothes over the freaking shower onto like the damp, dirty ground. And I'm like, really? You gonna kiss your teeth? And then proceed to do this. This is how you gonna kiss your teeth? And then walk in and throw your clothes over the fucking rail onto the damn ground. Are you gonna wear these clothes later? I you know. Like, do, do they go directly into the washing machine? What waste of clothes and the fucking washing load in the washing machine. Truly should not be this upset over this stuff. Truly should not. So that was my trip to the gym that raised my blood pressure for no fucking reason. But was they like, it's not worthy. Not worthy. Is the fact that my ass is in your face really that upsetting? Like, I'm sorry, if I only had like that peachy ass, you'll be fine with it. We need to talk about this, yeah. Truly. And nudist beaches make every beach a nudist beach. It will make the world a better place. One motive at a time. <laughs> my fucking stop. This is not fuck. I have lost my blood. I have lost my damn marbles. Those little measly marbles over there. Lost. Gone. Done. Gone. Let's do this. Let's do this. Let's actually talk about the topic of the day. Woo! Woo! Somebody had a hit of caffeine.